Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kranitsya, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Monday, April 18th, 2022. And this episode is produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper that has been focused on the Ukrainian community around the world since 1933. Our guest for this episode is Natalie Yaresko, who is an international financial executive. And among other many things that she's done, she was the former Minister of Finance of Ukraine from December of 2014 until April of 2016. Welcome, Natalie. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us today, Natalie. So if you could, uh, can you give our audience some brief background about your education, professional career, and very importantly, your Ukrainian roots? Sure, I'd be happy to. I'm a first-generation born American. My parents were both refugees uh, during World War II. My father from his family from the Poltava region in central Ukraine, and my mother's family from... Uh, the Carpathian region of Ukraine. They met in the United States, and I uh, was born in the suburbs of Chicago, went to DePaul University undergraduate, got my degree in accounting, and kind of had a double major in political science, then went on to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and got my master's in public policy. All of that was happening at the time Gorbachev was attempting to reform the Soviet Union, And I went on from there to the U.S. State Department to work on Soviet economic issues. I came with um, having grown up in a Ukrainian-American family, very close to my Ukrainian Orthodox Church, speaking Ukrainian, going to Ukrainian school on Saturdays, participating in cultural, historic events, boycotting (laughs) along with others as a captive nation back in the day. And grew up with incredible love for uh, Ukrainian tradition, culture, history, literature, respect for uh, my roots. And so you served as Minister of Finance of Ukraine from 2014 until 2016. First of all, how did that come about? And secondly, what were your major challenges in that position? So I moved to Ukraine in 1992, just after independence was achieved in December of 1991. And I came initially for three years with the U.S. Embassy as the economic section chief. I went on from there. I left the U.S. government. I went on to manage a social impact investment fund called Western NIS Enterprise Fund, which I did for about 11 years before spinning our team on creating Horizon Capital, which was a private equity manager. We had about $600 million under management investing in medium and small-sized businesses in Ukraine, Moldova. And after the Revolution of Dignity ended in February of 2014, and Russia invaded, illegally annexed Crimea, and then occupied Donbass, the economy was collapsing in Ukraine, and the currency was collapsing, the banking system was collapsing. And the newly elected president post-revolution, Petra Poroshenko, invited me to be Minister of Finance to try and put together what was necessary then to kind of save the economy from falling off the cliff. So that was a $40 billion balance of payments package. 
And I think he invited me, one, because I was obviously very committed to the country. I lived there for 25 years. I knew the players on both sides, the Ukrainian side and the international side that we were going to be turning to for assistance. I had excellent negotiation skills, which were going to be necessary if we were going to do a debt restructuring, which we did. And I served in this role during the initial war, which at the time seemed horrendous and horrific, and it was. Of course, what we're seeing today is multiples of that. It's impossible to even describe the horror now. My challenge in this position, wow, there were so many. Um, Again, we were falling off the financial cliff, and so time was of the essence. We needed to pull together a $40 billion support package from international partners, meaning the IMF, the World Bank, the EBRD, our bilateral partners uh, from the G7, the United States, Canada, the European Union, and then from the savings of this debt re- sovereign debt restructuring. We had to do this while negotiating a new reform package because uh, Ukraine had disappointed many on its reforms over during the Yanukovych presidency. And the international institutions wanted us to commit to those reforms uh, in order to receive much of the support we received at the time. It was conditional. So we needed to, we needed to implement very, very, very difficult reforms. Uh, we needed to bring gas prices close to market. We needed to eliminate much of the corruption and lack of transparency in, in the tax system. We needed to decentralize our financial system. Many of these things have now become strengths of the Ukrainian economy. We cleaned up our very poorly regulated banking system, shutting down over 100 banks, uh, nationalizing some. It was an incredible set of demands while reducing the budget deficit and starting to spend up to 5% of GDP on national security. We were at war. And the the previous leadership had, in essence, bankrupted the military, destroyed our military. When the wars began, we didn't have a military to speak of. And that exercise eight years ago in committing 5% of GDP to national security, to our defense, to our military, to our National Guard, is what resulted in, over the past eight years, the incredible Ukrainian armed forces that you see today, well-trained, well-supported, and extraordinary in their courage. So given all of your background with the Ukrainian economy, how do you view the current state of the economy today during the war? It is an economy being strangled, being suffocated by by Russia. And uh, it begins with obviously the incredible destruction that is occurring uh, all over the country. Uh, Don't be fooled, it's not only in the East. And it is the blocking over the ports. So our ability to export has been completely decimated. It is the human cost first and foremost, um, because you have a humanitarian disaster of un untold levels. It is the internally displaced people and refugees of 10 million people. Two out of every three, two out of every three children has been displaced. It's the death, it's the torture. The economy is hanging on through the patriotism and the incredible strength of Ukrainian businesses who continue to try to do business in those regions that are not under constant attack. The Ukrainian government is supporting them with low-cost loans to move to safer areas, uh, low-cost loans to farm, uh, farmland that is farmable so that we have the spring plowing. But the expectation is the GDP will decline somewhere around 
45, 50% this year. And likely if the war continues much longer, uh, it will be worse than that. Uh, as an example, we lived through a 10% decline in GDP during the initial invasion. And that's when they occupied 7% of the territory. This is going to be much, much worse. The good news is that the banking system is functioning. Um, so where it's safe and where it's possible, about 70% of the banking system of the systemic banks is, is functioning. Uh, the currency is functioning. The central bank is sitting on reserves. We had none when we started eight years ago. So it was a better starting point, but it is a much, much, much more difficult uh, environment for the economy uh, to continue and will continue to get worse as resources need to be very, very focused, focused on the military, focused on military salaries, focused out of respect to the families who've lost their military heroes, focused on pensions, on social support for all of the internally displaced. And of course, the rebuilding, which begins now in those communities, in those areas where they've been freed of the Russian occupiers, immediate efforts have to be made and invested into restoring electricity, gas, water into those areas. So it is the most difficult moment in Ukraine's history. So talking about rebuilding, which you said has already begun in some parts of Ukraine, what are current estimates of what that might cost? So when I think of rebuilding starting already, I mean, kind of the most basic essential services, which people need to live, again, water, electricity, heat, and some very basic bridges, for example, the bridge to Irpin and so on, that were blown up, in that case, by our own armed forces. It's not about rebuilding in necessarily, you know, all of the infrastructure and or all of the housing that is going to require a global effort. And the cost is hard to estimate because the damage increases every single day. So there was an initial estimate from the Kiev School of Economics, somewhere around 60 billion. Then the prime minister of Ukraine said that it was around 600 billion. I'll give you my perspective. I served for the last five years in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico's bankruptcy. And we were hit by Hurricane Maria in 2017. And the damage here was estimated to be about $100 billion. And Puerto Rico is 166 the size of Ukraine. So what, what I would say is um, we are talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, depending on how long this lasts, this could be a, up to a trillion dollars. And this is going to be probably the largest single rebuilding plan in history. So is there any frame of reference for this? Have you seen any other entire economy disaster recovery plans that you think might be relevant to the situation in Ukraine? So I think, you know, all of them are relevant in some way or another. So I take Puerto Rico as an example. The entire island was destroyed. Uh, this effort was based on uh, U.S. FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Assistance funding and private sector funding. And I've seen how this economy uh, needs to be rebuilt, how you need to take demographic changes uh, into account. Many people left the island. Many people have left Ukraine as refugees, hopefully most will come home. About the, you know, you look at the prioritization of housing in order to enable people to come home and infrastructure because there needs to be infrastructure for the housing. You also look at how you plan a, a better uh, rebuild. And I've seen this in the case of New Orleans. I've seen this in the case of looking at the Marshall Plan post-World War II, looking at the uh, plan to rebuild Kuwait after the Iraqi invasion. There are ma many 
things to look at. Each of them bring their own lessons learned. Ukraine is going to be larger than any of that and more complex because in the case of Marshall or Puerto Rico or even uh, Kuwait, there's generally speaking one funder, one donor. In this case, there are going to be a multitude of donors. So there's gonna be a massive coordination effort necessary internationally. And in the case of the Marshall Plan, you know, it was a multitude of recipients. Here, it's gonna be one recipient, Ukraine. This is an opportunity for Ukraine to build back uh, greener, more energy efficient, 21st century technology. And um, Ukraine could really benefit from planning this in a way that you know, brings even better uh, economic and a better economic foundation for the future. But it is going to be something that, as I said, has no precedent in terms of its size. If you look at the Marshall Plan in today's dollars, that was about $115 billion. And the Marshall Plan was really about providing dollars to those economies, uniting those economies through trade. It wasn't about rebuilding per se. So this is going to be something uh, of a greater level um, than anything we've seen. It will also require, to a large extent, that Russian frozen assets be at the very core of the funding. There are you know, at least $300 billion of Central Bank of Russia reserves that have been frozen. And of course, there have been assets that have been frozen all across the globe from different oligarchs and different other sanctioned entities. So I think that is going to have to be at the very core, that plus reparations. We need to look to reparations on an ongoing basis from Russia to rebuild uh, what it has destroyed. Natalie, on the topic of Russian frozen assets, how easy or difficult do you think it will be to tap into those? Well, it's going to be difficult. We're going to need legislation in every environment, legislation that you know we haven't seen yet. Uh, there are draft pieces of legislation, one by, by, by several different, I can't remember the names, congressional representatives. With regard to the oligarch assets, there hasn't been anything yet that I've seen, neither in the United States nor in the European Union, on the assets frozen of the Central Bank of Russia. There is a precedent in that we utilize some of the frozen Central Bank of Afghanistan assets for humanitarian purposes, but there will be, you know, it will be a long legislative path that we need to begin today. Natalie, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but I do have one more question for you. On a personal level, what efforts have you been undertaking to help with the war in Ukraine? So I've been doing everything humanly possible. I do an enormous amount of media, both in the United States as well as across Europe. I've published several op-eds, one in the FT, one in the Wall Street Journal, one in Atlantic Council. I have been speaking to businesses and leadership groups, in particular in conjunction with the boycottrussia.info website with that, that I work with and squeezingputin.com website to, to try and make sure that businesses are fully ceasing all their uh, work in Russia, stopping to finance and fund uh, this war effort. Just uh, today, we announced that we've filed a petition with the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States, together with the Ukrainian American Bar Association in Razum, to ask the SEC to require all publicly listed companies to fully disclose any and all risk and exposure to Russian and Belarusian entities, such that we as stakeholders can always make our own decisions to boycott those companies that refuse to leave voluntarily to self-sanction. I've also was very lucky. I, I spoke at a leadership retreat at Red Ventures, um, led, led and co-founded uh, by Rick Elias. And he's established a fundraiser where he's matching the first two and a half million dollars for Ukraine. And it is called Stronger Than Ever. 
um, on the Red Ventures website. So I'm raising money uh, for humanitarian supplies within Ukraine, very much trying to focus folks on the fact that the refugees have been met with enormous compassion in Europe and enormous amounts of support from international organizations. But the 40 million people who remain in Ukraine are in desperate need of medicines and other essential goods. And the international organizations rarely, if ever, have the ability to reach in and do the logistics necessary to get these things to Ukraine. So we'll be raising, we are raising a total of $5 million, up to $5 million, where he matches the first $2.5 million for support for humanitarian needs inside Ukraine, where I'll be working with Ukrainian organizations that do deliver. So everything in, uh, I can do, everything uh, possible, matching people up with folks in Ukraine, uh, speaking to Ukrainian government officials to work with them, US government officials. I was up on the Hill asking and, and urging Congress to increase and expand sanctions demonstrably because it has not been enough. So I, I focus on the economics um, to the extent I can. That's number one, the boycott effort, number two, sanctions, number three, raising money for, for Ukraine. And I do that as a volunteer, someone who just loves my country. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today on Krenitsa. Thank you. I have been speaking with Natalie Yaresko, who is an international finance executive and the former Minister of Finance of Ukraine from December 2014 until 2016. And this episode has been produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper that has been published for the Ukrainian community around the world since 1933. I'm Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia. Until next time, that's all for now.